Welcome to the new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live. On WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. For the final concert of the Albany Symphony season... We decided to go monumental in every which way. Not only did we feature Mahler's glorious Symphony No. 1, so-called the Titan, but we also premiered a brand-new choral symphony, a, a great, gorgeous work by American composer Darren Hagen, featuring the brilliant singers of Albany Pro Musica and their artistic director David Janauer with the Albany Symphony. This is Darren's fourth symphony. I believe it's his first choral symphony. And actually, uh, when I invited him to write the piece, I'm not even sure that I specified a symphony. What I asked for was a big piece for chorus and orchestra, a glorious work, somehow connected to the Hudson River, this being the quadricentennial of Henry Hudson's journey up the Hudson. And uh, I told him that I wanted it to be for our final concert and to make a big statement, and also that it would be paired with Mahler's first symphony. And I must say that Darren delivered the perfect piece for this concert. Not only is the piece somehow a wonderful complement to the Mahler's First Symphony, but it also manages to be specific about the river, in the case of our orchestra, the Hudson River, while at the same time being a much more general piece that's really about rivers in general and about the beauty of, of rivers. It's also a little bit about, I think as Darren describes it, a little bit about middle age, and I'll elaborate on that in a moment. Darren found two extraordinary texts to set for this work, one rather narrative in style, the other rather more poetic. The first is by Mark Twain, and it's a rather long excerpt in terms of choral symphonies, about five paragraphs, uh, from Mark Twain's work, Life on the Mississippi. This, of course, was a prose work, and Twain, who had always been captivated by his river, the Mississippi, decided at a certain point in his career to become actually a, a boat captain, a ship captain, and to learn all the details of life on the river. And he writes this gorgeous, very evocative, and very thought-provoking text about how when he mastered life on the river, he somehow not only gained a great deal, but lost something as well. In fact, let me just read you the first line or the first couple of lines of this prose that uh, Darren set. Twain writes, When I had mastered the language of the water, I had made a valuable acquisition, but I had lost something too. All the poetry had gone out of the majestic river. Something's lost. And then he goes on to describe a beautiful experience on the river, a gorgeous sunset and seeing a log go by and and the texture of the water changing. But then he he sort of stops in the middle of his narrative and says, but I began to, to cease from noting the glories wrought upon the river's face. The sun means wind tomorrow. The log means the river is rising. You know, sort of he becomes desensitized to the poetry of the river as he learns more of the workings of it. And then he says, the romance was gone from the river. Then there's an incredible line that Darren sets quite beautifully. Since those days, I have pitied doctors from my heart. What does the lovely flush in a beauty's cheek mean but the break that ripples above some deadly disease? Does he ever see her beauty at all or simply view her professionally? 
Doesn't he sometimes wonder whether he has gained most or lost most by learning his trade? This is the material that Darren embraces and shapes as the text for the first movement of this three-movement work. And it's a, a fascinating piece, very tonal, very beautiful. Darren is one of these uh, young, up-and-coming, unabashed tonalists. He was a sort of, I guess, protege of Bernstein. He's about my age, mid-40s, and also owes a great deal to the, the most romantic of the 20th century American romantics, Samuel Barber and Howard Hansen, I think, chief among them. And so he writes in an extremely lyrical, very tonal way, and sets text beautifully. He's also, I think, written four or five operas already, uh, and so is quite an expert at setting text. So the first movement of the symphony, of this choral symphony, is occupied with this Twain text of of gaining something but losing something. Something's lost. Uh, He also begins the symphony with a a line from a much more poetic quote from Walt Whitman, but also from a prose work. It's, It's Walt Whitman's rather late work, Specimen Days. And Whitman writes again about water. He says, This is the hour for strange effects in light and shade, enough to make a colorist go delirious. And that, in fact, is the opening line of the first movement. So he uses this little line of Whitman, this gorgeous, evocative line about strange effects of light and shade and making a colorist delirious. And then he launches into his Twain text. But for the last movement, the third and last movement of the symphony, Darren quotes this entire beautiful text by Whitman in which he describes long spokes of molten silver sent horizontally through the trees, each leaf and branch of endless foliage a lit-up miracle. Ah, this is the hour for strange effect in light and shade. A very beautiful slow movement to end this symphony, very different from the symphony on the second half, which of course ends in a blaze of triumph. And then in between these two movements, the first Twain movement and the last Whitman movement, these two gorgeous choral movements, Darren fashions a a sort of lumbering scherzo, purely orchestral as the middle movement, and uh, talks in his program notes about this middle movement really being an evocation of the Hudson River when it arrives down at Manhattan and eventually pours into the ocean, so a lot of turbulence. But in uh, working with the orchestra, he he made allusions to the fact that he designed this middle movement to be very irregular uh, in terms of the the rhythmic patterns and in terms of the melodic materials, that they always come kind of at strange ways and strange times and and somewhat askew. And he he said that to him, this is very much an evocation of the world in New York City after 9-11, how everything was kind of turned topsy-turvy and everybody went through their day, and yet nothing seemed to be quite aligned correctly. So a very strange and interesting and very powerful scherzo between these two glorious movements. Uh, Darren Hagen lives in New York City, but has spent a great deal of time in the Hudson Valley, actually in transit through the Hudson Valley. He spent many summers up at Yaddo, the beautiful artist's retreat in Saratoga, and also taught for 10 years at Bard College in the Mid-Hudson region. And so, as he said, he he spent much of his life on the train, either going up the Hudson or going down the Hudson, and most of the most important decisions of his life were made while traversing this beautiful span of the Hudson River between New York and and our region. So now, here is the world premiere performance of Darren Hagen's Symphony No. 4, River Music, featuring Albany Pro Musica, Artistic Director David Griggs Janauer, with the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes Podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. After that glorious evocation of nature uh, on the first half of our program, I thought it would be only fitting, this program being presented in the month of May, 
that we feature the ultimate spring symphony of all times, Gustav Mahler's mighty first symphony. This is a work really from Mahler's youth in that he wrote the piece at the time when he was between the ages of 24 and 28 years old. It was premiered when Mahler was 28. This was a period of time in Mahler's life when he was going through an absolutely meteoric ascent as a conductor. You know, his day job was not as a composer. He, he never actually made a living from composing at all. He made his living quite handsomely by being one of the great conductors of the late 19th and early 20th century. And in this period, he was pretty much going through an opera house a year as he ascended the ladder from one opera house in the German-speaking lands to another, starting in little places like Olmutz and such, and eventually going through, if you, if you look at ascent from Kassel to uh, Budapest to Leipzig to Hamburg, eventually making his way to the pinnacle of opera jobs, opera conducting jobs in the German-speaking world, the Vienna Court Opera, which of course became the Vienna State Opera. He was there, I believe, for at least 10 years and was a radical reformer who really is credited with bringing that opera house into the 20th century and making it one of the greatest opera houses, one of the legendary opera houses in all of opera history. But meanwhile, back in his 20s, as he was going from town to town, having ever bigger jobs, he was madly composing in every free moment he had. And when he was 24, he composed a beautiful little song cycle, The Songs of the Wayfarer, very much in the mode of those famous song cycles for piano and voice by Schubert and Schumann, Schöne Müllerin and Winterreise by Schubert and the Dichterliebe of Schumann, song cycles which invariably deal with a young man, a young artist, loving and losing the object of his love and her marrying someone else and his trudging off either to death or to uh, on into the the next chapter of his life. So Mahler fashioned a a four-song cycle, Songs of the Wayfarer, which does essentially what those Schumann and Schubert cycles do. begins with a a song about his, when mein Schatz Hochzeit mach, when my beloved is married, it'll be the saddest day of my life. Uh, So it, because he's of course not the, the object of her affections at this point. The second song, very famous and beautiful song, Ging heut morgen übers Feld. I went out in the morning over the fields. Spring was appearing everywhere. And yet, at the end of the song, he says, but when will my happiness come? Never, never. This song, of course, becomes the material of the first movement of the first symphony. Uh, and the final song also uh, figures a great deal in this first symphony. It's a beautiful song, Die Zwei Blauen Augen von meinem Schatz, the two blue eyes of my beloved have sent me out into the world, and off he goes trudging. And the middle section of this fourth movement also finds its way into the first symphony. Mahler, of course, is unique in the history of symphonic writers. He, he really only wrote in two genres, essentially. In, he wrote a great number of songs, both with piano and also with orchestra. And then he also wrote his monumental symphonies and symphonic cycles, which uh, even the Das Lied von der Erde, this song symphony, is a combination of the two. He didn't write operas. He didn't write chamber music. He didn't write solo piano music. He really focused entirely on songs and symphonies that, in essence, told the story of his life, his suffering, uh, the psychological journey of a man from youth, essentially, to death. But here in the first symphony, he's still dealing with a young, vital man, which in fact he was in his mid-twenties. And so when he finished the song cycle, he immediately began work on this first symphony. Originally, it was in five movements. There was a a delicate little movement called Blue Mina uh, that sat between the first and the second movements. And and when Mahler first created this piece, it was premiered in Budapest in 1888. It was a disaster. Nobody seemed to like it or get it or understand it. It was essentially a a gigantic five-movement tone poem 
uh, with some nods to symphonic form, but it was really more tone poem than symphony, a much freer form than the symphonies of the day. And most listeners just didn't know what he was talking about when he, he premiered this piece. He was really despondent after the premiere, withdrew the piece, and actually revised it, I believe, a total of three times over the next 15 or 20 years, eventually th- discarding that little Lumina movement, that little adagio and andante movement, and also casting it much more as a symphony than as a symphonic poem. We will be performing the final version, which is still a, as much tone poem as it is symphony, in my estimation. Anyway, the work is now in four movements, four big movements. The first movement begins essentially with the, the creation of the universe, and also it begins with this incredible evocation of the natural world, something that Mahler would go back to, but I, I don't know that he ever evoked the world of nature as explicitly or as masterfully as he did at this opening of the first symphony, quite an arresting and astounding way to begin your first symphony. The strings play harmonics, these high whistling overtones, seven octaves just of the note A, and then this sort of the world kind of creates itself with these little... You hear the rabbits scamper by and the clarinets and trumpet fanfares in the distance and beautiful evocation of sort of the awakening of the earth after spring, eventually leading after the chirp of some cuckoos, cuckoo, cuckoo, a cuckoo, by the way, singing a perfect fourth, whereas real cuckoos tend to sing a minor third or something like that. Uh, But Mahler's cuckoo has to sing a fourth so that eventually it can turn into the beginning interval of that song that I mentioned, Ging heut Morgen Übersfeld, this beautiful song of spring, springtime awakening, which becomes the, the argument, the material of the first movement. And it's this gorgeous kind of song symphony, no voice, the orchestra, in fact, is the singer, but a, a song fantasy all about the coming of springtime. And with a beautiful slow interlude in the middle, which kind of leads us to the beginning of the sun rising and at the end a glorious opening up of the sound as the full sun arrives in its in its complete glory in the horns and the brass. Uh, that's the first movement. The second movement is a somewhat more conventional scherzo. It's actually uh, not really a scherzo as much as a kind of Viennese Lendler, a kind of relative, a, a rustic relative of the waltz. With a great, very delicate and, dare I say, sensuous trio, a, a slower Lindler in the middle. Rather uh, traditional design, though. The third movement is, is arguably the most extraordinary of all the movements in the symphony, a, a really bizarre movement, inspired, at least in as Mahler described it, by a woodcutting he remembered from his childhood of the huntsman's funeral, uh, and the coffin being followed by all the animals of the forest. Uh, why they would be lamenting the death of their nemesis is part of the parody, bizarre of the, of the whole uh, endeavor. And yet it is this strange and wondrous funeral march with the timpani beginning, boom, 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 boom. And this amazing, very famous and this much discussed bass solo that begins it. Uh, the first, the principal bass player, in our case, the Albany Symphony's principal bass player, Mr. Brad Aikman, a brilliant player, uh, plays this very high and very delicate solo, uh, muted, which, if you pay attention to it after a while, begins to begins to become obvious that it's in fact Frere Jaca turned into a minor key piece. 
Brüder Martin, as it's called in German. And he plays this solo, and it's taken up by the different instruments of the orchestra, the different animals of the woods, and they all sing it. And then it leads into this amazing kind of klezmer music duo with the oboes and then with the, the trumpet and uh, the E-flat clarinets and uh, cymbal and bass drums sounding like a little village klezmer wedding band, all sorts of strange, interesting Jewish music in the middle, and eventually leading to that beautiful quote from the last song of the Wayfarer's Songs, Auf der Straße steht ein Lindenbaum. On the street stood a linden tree uh, that I used to lie under, and it was so peaceful and and beautiful, and nothing was a problem, everything was good, life and peace and song and such, uh, this sort of memory music that appears in the middle and then leads us back to this trudging funeral march that ends the movement. This was the movement that in Mahler's time made the audience the most upset. They just had never thought that any such bizarre music could appear in a symphony. They were quite, I think, scandalized by the idea of sticking something so bizarre and evocative in as a, a, a slow movement of a symphony. Anyway, that leads to this amazing finale, uh, a finale that begins with an absolute cry, perhaps of a heart wounded, and leads to this amazingly powerful, potent set of sort of struggles with fate, something that Mahler would do throughout his symphonies. So the music is very tempestuous and, and extremely dramatic and strong and loud, extremes of loud and soft, leading to not one but two exquisite interludes, again, this kind of love music. I should probably mention that Mahler, uh, when he was the music director in Kassel, uh, had a very passionate, although brief, love affair with a young singer named Johanna Richter. It was she who inspired him to write the Wayfarer songs, and in essence, my guess is that these two interludes in the, in the last movement of the symphony are uh, sort of residual quotes from all the love music that he wrote about this passionate but brief uh, entanglement with Ms. Richter. Uh, so anyway, there are these two kind of beautiful shelter-from-the-storm uh, adagios inside the symphony, but always returning to this tumultuous, tempestuous music in which the artist, Mahler, struggles with fate. Eventually, this finally leads to, to the artist's or to the young man's uh, triumph over adversity and an amazing horn call that comes up at the very toward the very end of the piece bum 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 beam bum 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 which i've always felt has a, a great affinity to a uh, and he shall reign forever and ever to the the hallelujah chorus from the messiah but at the same time what's amazing about this call is that it's actually the the very opening material of the symphony at the very beginning after this this A that rings out in the strings in the background. You hear this as Mahler essentially creates the universe. And here now in the last movement, the same material, the same theme, sort of turned to major and turned into a, a hymn of triumph. All eight horns stand up and play while standing. Bum, 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 beam, bum, beam, bum, 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 bringing the symphony to one of the most terrifically triumphant endings that any symphony has ever had. So that's it. Mahler's first symphony, an epic beginning to an epic symphonic life. The Mahler one is played by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.